The United Nations continues to meet to develop wording for the global treaty to ban nuclear weapons. But the one thing that must be heard for this treaty to have full meaning is... What about the people, the neglected people? What about them? We talk about nuclear disarmament, but who controls that political discussion? Why isn't it the survivors? Where are they? Where are they in these discussions? When you hear truth like that, whether you're in the Marshall Islands or the good old U.S. of A. or anywhere else, you know that you share the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we discover the human face behind the United Nations talks to finalize the global treaty to ban nuclear weapons. We will be having an interview with Desmond Delatrom of the Marshall Islands, who is founder of the NGO Reach Me. Beyond the cold, hard, upsetting facts of what was done to the Marshall Islands, he speaks of family, illnesses, the need for reparations, and the United States' long-neglected responsibilities to the people they so casually abused in our quest for sustained nuclear domination of the world. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report on the latest reportable problems at those crumbling U.S. nuclear reactors. Plus, news from around the world, plenty of attitude, and more honest nuclear information than has managed to get in the media during this ongoing monster heat wave. Is anyone still denying climate change? Really? All of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June twentieth, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. These days, it wouldn't be nuclear hot seat without a story about the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state, one of the most contaminated places on the face of the earth. According to CounterCurrent News, a member of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recently informed the public that radioactive waste from the decommissioned Hanford nuclear power plant is, quote, flowing freely into the Columbia River. The Hanford site is upriver from a million or so people, not to mention wildlife, including downtown Portland. Constructed in the 1940s as part of the Manhattan Project, the plant was decommissioned after the Cold War, leaving behind some 53 million gallons of high-level radioactive waste. As noted in the list of National Superfund sites, 
Soils there were contaminated by radiological and chemical waste from plutonium manufacture for the Manhattan Project. Groundwater contaminated by strontium-90, carbon-14, tritium, and hexavalent chromium. That's the Aaron Brockovich chemical. Groundwater and soil contamination by tritium, uranium, cyanide, carbon tetrachloride, and substances from processing, finishing, and managing nuclear materials, including plutonium, for nuclear weapons. A recent EPA review of the site concluded that contaminated groundwater is contaminating the Columbia. Randy Bradbury, spokesman for the Washington State Department of Ecology's Hanford Nuclear Waste Program, said, We don't have enough funding as it is to do the work that needs to be done. So the cuts, meaning the impending environmental cuts by the Trump administration, are very concerning. Yeah. Bob Alvarez of the Institute for Policy Studies has provided a chart on the costs of cleaning up Department of Energy nuclear sites. Hanford tops the list at an estimated cost of $135 billion with a B, and the total current estimated liability is $411.2 billion with a B dollars. And this is just for nuclear weapons production and maintenance. Nuclear power generation and the waste it creates is a whole nother story. In North St. Louis, Republic Services, needing to get rid of some of its radioactive waste in the Westlake landfill, has taken as policy one of two cliches, either kick the can down the road or sweep the stuff under the rug. In light of that, a Roxana, Illinois landfill operated by Republic Services, which owns and operates the Westlake landfill, has accepted radioactive material despite not having a license to do so. This according to an inquiry from the Metro East Sun. Kim Briggs of the Illinois EPA's Public Information Office said, Roxana Landfill is prohibited from accepting radioactive waste for disposal. The Roxana Landfill, while in a completely separate state, is only 30 miles away from Bridgeton and the Westlake Landfill. The new head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, who is also a climate change denier, has vowed to speed the nation's Superfund cleanups, specifically singling out the Westlake Landfill. He stated, It's not a matter of money. It's a matter of leadership and attitude and management. No, dude, you have to have the money, too. And the site needs more than a PR Band-Aid. The situation in North St. Louis will be helped enormously, I believe, by an upcoming film that's going to be released this fall entitled Atomic Homefront. In the coming weeks, we'll have more information on this film and an interview with the filmmaker. But it is a top-notch documentary that makes the case and cannot be avoided. Meanwhile, for a whole other take on radioactive nuclear waste... Nuclear hot seat... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. Ecotourism gives way to ecocidal tourism when you hike the Nuclear Waste Adventure Trail in Missouri. Officially called the Weldon Spring Site Remedial Action Project Disposal Cell, my God, could they make it more jargonese? This man-made mountain holds 1.48 million cubic yards of asbestos, TNT, PCBs, mercury, 
radioactive uranium and radium and other rubble from what was once the biggest explosives factory in the U.S. and then a uranium plant for Cold War nuclear bombs. Mm-mm-mm. You can explore the visitor center nearby to pick up your glow-in-the-dark souvenirs. And, of course, then you can go out and climb the hill. The radioactive hill. Only 24 minutes or 18 miles from the Bridgeton and Westlake landfills in North St. Louis. So if you don't get your radionuclides in one place, you can always take a field trip to catch up with them at Weldon Springs. And that's why Nuclear Waste Adventure Trail, such an adventure. Don't wait to sign up for their follow-up trips, tours of the cancer wards at Sloan Kettering in New York, and the Mayo Clinic. Nuclear Waste Adventure Trail, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In New York on Monday, June 19, more than a dozen anti-nuclear bomb activists were arrested for disorderly conduct after they blocked the entrances to the U.S. mission to the United Nations to protest Washington's decision to boycott negotiations on a nuclear weapons ban treaty. Chanting, U.S., join the talks, ban the bomb, doesn't rhyme, but it works. The protesters sat in front of the doors for only about 10 minutes before New York police moved in. The U.N. General Assembly adopted a resolution in December, 113 in favor to 35 against with 13 abstentions, that decided to, quote, negotiate a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons, leading towards their total elimination, and encouraged all member states to participate. The U.S. declined and was among 40 countries, most of them nuclear, that decided not to join the talks. More on that coming up. Time for the nuclear reactor, duck <laughs> And cover report. Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Massachusetts at the foot of Cape Cod is the winner! Yay! Or maybe not. It leads the nation's fleet of 99 active reactors for incidents or conditions over the last 40 years that could have led to core damage and an accompanying release of radiation. This according to a division of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that conducts risk analysis and obviously wasn't vetted before they put forth their report. Pilgrim has made the list for accidents sequence precursors 23 times since 1980, and these precursors are defined by the NRC as observed events or conditions that, when combined with one or more factors such as human error or equipment failure, could result in damage to the reactor's core and a massive release of radiation. David Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists, says the accident sequence precursors are like golf scores in that the low score wins. Oh, misreading. Pilgrim, you lose. <coughs> At Cooper in Nebraska... Primary containment declared inoperable, an event or condition that, at the time of discovery, could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function of structures or systems that are needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. <coughs> at Braidwood in Illinois, discharge of circulating water that wasn't supposed to be circulating where it went was analyzed and the results confirmed the presence of tritium. <coughs> Faulty parts from TE Connectivity has been sold to 22 different nu nuclear energy companies for use in their facilities. And a different set of bad parts took out Akani in South Carolina this week. <coughs> in Japan, 
a small amount of plutonium, that's like saying a little bit pregnant, was found in the urine of five workers exposed to radiation in an accident earlier this month at a nuclear research facility in Ibaraki Prefecture. That's five workers who have suffered internal radiation exposure from plutonium. We'll have more on this story next week. In South Korea, their new president, Moon Jae-in, said he would lead his country towards a nuclear-free era following fears of a Fukushima-style meltdown. He said, we will abolish our nuclear-centered energy policy and move towards a nuclear-free era. We will completely scrap construction plans for new nuclear reactors that are currently underway. Why is it that South Korea makes more nuclear sense than we do here in the U.S. of A.? We'll have today's featured interview in just a moment. But first, my thanks to all of you who helped us celebrate the first six years of Nuclear Hot Seat last week with a donation. Now, if you're thinking, darn, I missed it, know that you can catch up at any time and in any amount. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and it's a quick, easy process. Now, some of you have expressed a desire to support the show on an ongoing basis, but you are on a limited budget. To help you out, we now have a feature that will allow you to sign up for just $5 a month as your donation, and that is going to go a long way towards supporting our work. If you would like to sign up for this $5 recurring donation, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down, and click on the big green Donate button. Know that whatever amount you can offer, at whatever frequency you can offer it, it is deeply appreciated, it really does keep this show operating, and you have my gratitude. Now for this week's interview. In 1956, the United States Atomic Energy Commission regarded the Marshall Islands as, quote, by far the most contaminated place in the world. And we should know, because we did it to them. That's because between 1946 and 1958, the U.S. exploded 67 atomic devices on the islands and in the waters around these islands. This included Castle Bravo, the largest atomic bomb ever exploded by this country, over 1,000 times more powerful than the bomb at Hiroshima. What did it mean to the people there? What was done to them, and what has happened since? Well, in part, the Marshall Islands have been taking an active role in the United Nations talks to craft a global treaty to ban nuclear weapons. One of those deeply involved is Desmond Delatrom. He is co-founder of the NGO Reach Me, which stands for Radiation Exposure Awareness Crusaders for Humanity, Marshall Islands. Desmond has seen the devastating effects of the testing of these nuclear bombs in the Marshall Islands within his own family, and he's seen it extend out to the entire culture of the islands. After graduating from college in 2010, he worked on climate change in the office of the president of the Marshall Islands and as an educator at a local high school. Now he is at the UN, helping to showcase the little-known side of history and humanity from the Pacific and human rights abusers by colonial superpowers that took a nuclear form. Here we talk about the cultural background of the Marshall Islands, 
what was done to them by American nuclear interests led by Operation Paperclip, formerly, put that in quotes, Nazi scientists, and his current activities in and around the United Nations. Desmond Dalitrum, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi. Your family is from the Marshall Islands. How long have they lived there? What is the family history? My history goes way back because my grandpa was actually the first president and he's a descendant of both chiefly clans from the Western and Eastern chains, which was basically all of the Marshall Islands. And my grandma, they were both arranged since birth. So I have a long history from the Marshall Islands. They're kind of like the founding fathers and mothers of the Marshall Islands, my grandparents. So it's been a family tradition to carry on the torch and do what you can for your people. So that's basically why I helped co-found the non-government organization, Reach Me, which stands for Radiation Exposure Awareness Crusaders for Humanity for the Marshall Islands. Let's explore some of those issues and how the Marshall Islands came to be targeted by U.S. and international military forces for the bomb testing. When the U.S. military moved to set up the bomb test in 1946, what did they tell your grandparents and the other Marshall Islanders was their reason for doing so? Did they manipulate things so that they were able to bring this off? The reason why they did it was because they said the Marshall Islands was a perfect place because it was isolated. But the funny part is I don't understand why is it that it's okay to drop bombs here on a native population in the middle of the Pacific where nobody knows about it, but it's not okay to do it in their own soil. The thing that they told the natives here was that it was for the good of mankind and that it was to help end all wars. And as you were mentioning, some of the tactics they use is divide and conquer strategy. And it was actually my grandpa's grandfather that was the original chief of Bikini Atoll where they dropped some of the bombs. And he was not consulted properly. Instead, they talked with some of the landowners, well, one of the landowners instead, and gave him a false title of king so that he could agree to it, and the rest is history. And an unfortunate history it is. When the bombing started, what happened to your family? It was a sad part of history because it was all about trying to get this piece of land back and tell people because a lot of the younger generation weren't aware that the real chief of Bikini was Jaimutak Kabua. Most of them were unaware of this because of what the U.S. did. And they actually created sides between the original chief and the people of Bikini Atoll. And one of the things that happened was there was some tension between this family because it literally, America became the new chief of that atoll and they were trying to play sides. And one of the things that they did was they promised these people certain things that they never fulfilled them. Some of those things were safe resettlement and return of economic productivity of those islands that are now radioactive. Has there ever been an opportunity or a way to safely return to the islands that were evacuated? Yes. The Atomic Energy Commission announced that the islands are safe for resettlement, and President Lyndon B. Johnson also announced that it was safe to resettle in the 1960s. But when people actually went back there, 
it was still radioactive and most people were poisoned by the high level of cesium and the coconut and some of the other stuff there. But that's only the least of the problems because if you also look into the history of the 1954 Bravo incident, there were people who were subjected to actual fallout and those were the people of Rongalap and Wudruk at all. You're a member of the younger generation. What was the impact on members of your family who were exposed to the radiation, exposed to the fallout, displaced from their homes in the Marshall Islands? Some of the impacts, especially from my relatives from the Northwestern atolls, are some of them died of cancer. Some of them have lost their thyroids. Some of the people, actually the victims that were subjected to the nuclear ash that fell from the Bravo incident lost their hair, their skins peeled. And some of the people that were not the people that were directly affected from the fallout, but the people of Bikini that were taken away are now subjected to cultural loss. They were one of the finest navigators in the Marshall Islands and being in the northernmost part of the western chains and now... They're basically like the nuclear nomads. They're like always moving around. And now due to climate change, they're going to move again because of sea level rise where they were permanently relocated to one of the atolls in the southern part. But now they're becoming very dependent on canned food, which is sad because they've got a high rate of diabetes now. Like all those traditional knowledge and cultural skills are now lost to a new generation because not only do the new place that they were resettled in not have a lagoon, but they also do not have the necessary skills to carry on what was once a rich tradition of navigation and farming and all the traditional skills that came with sustainable livelihood. But most pressing concerns are radiogenic illnesses that are still very much alive in the Marshall Islands, especially among the nuclear communities. And this is something that is very, very hard to address, especially on the part of the Marshall Islands, because not only is it a small island developing state, but they basically don't have the capacity. And the lack of American funding to alleviate that burden is very real. What kind of assistance, if any, was there while the tests were going on, and what part did your family have in fighting back against the nuclear incursion in their world? My great-grandmother was actually the first indigenous Micronesian to speak in front of the United Nations Trusteeship Council in 1953. As early as 1953, she placed an original request to seize the nuclear testing, but it fell on deaf ears. It was a year later in 1954, even then, that was when the Bravo incident happened. And if they had heeded to our warning, maybe it wouldn't have happened, but they went on with it regardless. The testing actually ceased in 1958. And besides another formal petition in 1954 signed by Marshallese Congress members and was led by Dwight Heine and Adelanian, it also fell on deaf ears the resolution was actually defeated by the United Nations Trusteeship Council. And what's really sad is the UN ambassador from the U.S., I think it was Henry Cabot Lodge, he was a Republican. Mm -hmm. He basically said that the U.S. does not consult the United Nations, they only inform. 
So in other words, as we have seen play out so many times, the United Nations was there, but it really had no power to make change. It could only hope to influence change if anybody was listening. Would that be accurate? Pretty much. They have no enforcement capabilities, as you were saying. So the testing in the area of the Marshall Islands took place from 1946 to 1968, a total of 12 years. The United Nations Charter was actually signed a year later. It was in 1947 when the UN Charter, the U.S. signed it, but they actually already detonated bombs in 1946. And the saddest part is, before the first Hiroshima-sized bomb, they actually evacuated certain people from the atolls for their safety, such as people from Wapo, people from Rongolap, and people from Eneweta. But during the Bravo incident, which was predicted to be 250 times the size of Hiroshima, the Hiroshima bomb, nobody was evacuated, and that bomb actually turned out to be 1,000 times the strength of Hiroshima, and that ended up affecting severely an innocent population residing in Urongalap, Ailinganai, and Uduruk. And of course, there's also the issue of Ailok Atoll, where people, around 400 of them, weren't evacuated because the U.S. military said it would be too inconvenient. And if you really look into the history of the evacuation, it's really sad because when the bomb was detonated March 1st, a group of U.S. personnel were evacuated on March 2nd because they were aware of the fallout path, but certain other people, such as the people from Rongalap and Wudurup and Eiling and I, weren't, weren't told about the fallout path, so they got subjected to the radioactive showering. The people of Ailok, who had equal fallout measures from mirroring that of Wudurup at all, weren't evacuated because it was deemed inconvenient to evacuate 400 people. So even if you look at that part of that history and the size of the yield of the bomb, you can see that the inequality is pretty evident. I've seen a movie called Nuclear Savage, which went into detail about the kind of medical test that the United States was doing to survivors in the Marshall Islands. And Mm -hmm. it really detailed the atrocities that were being committed there and that we were simply using it as a grounds for experimenting in what is the impact of radiation and tracking things, not getting medical treatment, but taking medical history just to understand the long-term impact of radiation. It appears that this was either by intent or by accident a form of ecological genocide that was being committed against your people. Well, I hate to say it, but if you are to listen to the people that were actually there and subjected to those experiments, that rings true on all accounts, regardless of my personal views of America. Because one of the victims that I interviewed, her name is Merge Joseph, she was there and when the radioactive dust actually fell on her, she thought it was powder detergent and she thought she could use it as shampoo and play with it. And she took some to, home to her parents not knowing that it was radioactive dust that was severely, severely poisonous because of the yield. She ended up losing some of her hair later on that day. And some of the kids were crying. She remembers vividly those memories, but... 
as far as those experiments that you were talking about, she did mention it, and one of the things that she really, really wished she had was a camera to record how cruel this stuff happened because she was telling me that she was but a child and she had no idea how embarrassing it was for some of her relatives, especially the women, to be stripped naked in front of their brothers, their uncles, their grandfathers, their sons, exposed and all they could do is laugh. They were kids. They had nothing, no knowledge of how embarrassing it was, especially considering our culture where women are very, very modest and they're very discreet. They don't show things or expose any bare skin to any of their male relatives. And this was extremely embarrassing because they'd use those, what do they call those, Geiger counters? Yes. They'd use it on them to see whether they still had radiation and if they still had it, they tell them to go, again, strip naked and bathe in the water or stay in the water again. And then they come back out, they hose them down. And then if it go beep, beep or something, because it still had high levels of radiation, they tell them to strip naked again and go. It was such an embarrassing incident. And all the all she remembers, Ms. Nerdia Joseph was looking at most of the women, always looking down because it was such a shameful and mortifying event that scarred them emotionally for the rest of their life. It is something that was extremely forbidden in our culture, especially for women who take pride in being the most modest people in the Marshall Islands, being that they always, always set an example and be moral examples towards not only their other younger female members, but also to their sons, because they're literally the mothers of our culture and our families. These people weren't notified of what it is that they were actually doing. As I was talking about Ms. Nerje Joseph, she said that even as she grew older, they were always doing biopsies on her. She doesn't, she can't even recall how many times they've taken a piece of her flesh, cutting her, whether it be her breast or anywhere in her body. She lost count of how many times they've taken pieces of her flesh. But you're right, one of those experiments, uh, those projects that we never hear about is called Project 4.1. You don't see these in American history textbooks, but of course, we see all the crimes of the Nazi Holocaust readily exposed, detailing the crimes of the Nazis against the Jewish people, some of which were also medical experiments. So this is where there's very clear human rights abuses and general inequality as to how these people were treated. They weren't even part of the war. And these people that were directly exposed, they weren't even told. They didn't even give permission to have the bombs dropped. The Americans bypassed the real chief, B.J. Mbakabua, and went to a landowner. And they weren't even evacuated or given the same courtesy of being aware of the fallout path so that they could evacuate without being subjected to the radioactive dust. So these are things that we look back and we see the level of cruelty and how certain people are treated because nobody's watching because, as I said earlier, it was an isolated region kept out of sight and out of mind. It seemed like the perfect place. It was only isolated to those people who were living in the Northern Hemisphere, whereas it was home for you and your people. Yep. Now, you are quite a bit younger than those individuals who were exposed directly to the radiation. But yet, Mm -hmm. this is the legacy that you grew up with. What was it like growing up with this 
awareness of the nuclear experimentation that was happening literally in your own backyard and to the detriment of your family and your people? If I am to be honest, because this kind of history was really concealed from the public, most of the documents are still classified and some of them were only declassified in the 90s. So this is a huge part of history that most of us were largely ignorant of because of the level of secrecy. My parents' generation, they weren't aware of the general circumstances surrounding it because it was also kept in secret. What we heard about was from my grandparents' generation who were more involved in that process and that time of history. But it took a while for us to kind of recover that part of history because most of it was kept out of sight and out of mind. And it's a piece of us that we should have known at an early age, but because of the lack of access to certain information, it made us not be aware of what it is that we should have known. For me, it is also about relearning something or learning to keep up with what it is that these people are still suffering from. When did you first find out about this aspect of your history? And when did you become active in the activism that you're currently doing? I already had a general picture of it. It's not like they don't play programs in the Marshall Islands and they don't go around talking about it, but it was just a general history. But I became active when I actually graduated from college. Yeah, it's kind of a cliche where students go to college and then learn a lot more about injustices and student activism and they come back home and want to give back to those people. So that was actually when I came back. It was in 2010 when I graduated from college. I came back and I co-founded an NGO with a couple of my friends called Jojigum, which was an environmental NGO. And from there on, I co-founded an NGO called Reach Me. And that's when my passion started because there was this forum that we would discuss issues online with the Marshallese community called Kewanjela, and that started and sparked my interest. And this group of mine met me online from this forum, and we started meeting with these old school politicians, and it went on from there. Like It was an issue that they felt needed to be passed on to younger people like me and more passionate people that still have the energy. And here we are, carrying on that torch hoping to pass it on again. And you're obviously doing a very visible job of it. Just to explain to listeners that when you say Reach Me, it stands for Radiation Exposure Awareness Crusaders for Humanities. That's the Reach part. And the Me yeah. stands for Marshall Islands. Marshall Islands, Island. yeah. How has that work that you have been doing relate to your current placement in New York Working as the United Nations Treaty to Ban Nuclear Weapons is approaching final wording. Reach Me's main goal has always been trying to achieve the modicum of justice, especially trying to get just reparations through the established avenue of the Compact of Free Association between the United States and the Marshall Islands, which in its preamble states that this relationship was founded upon respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms for all. The avenue that was set up to address compensation and fair ones at that was the change circumstance petition, and today that still sits with U.S. Congress. Just as certain reparations had to go through U.S. Congress during the Trust Territory days, this is no different. 
And that avenue has been set up legally through the Contractor Free Association, and it still sits with U.S. Congress. So the main focus of Reach Me has always been trying to achieve that sense of justice by drawing attention to that issue where outstanding human rights claims through fair reparations has yet to be met. And as we talk about this nuclear ban treaty, it really is more on Reach Me's part to divert the discussions on the humanitarian consequences. And one of those consequences would be lack of fair reparations to the nuclear victims who are currently suffering from those past testings. And it has always been about the victims. And putting a human face on the issue of nuclear disarmament is the main course that Reach Me is dedicated to achieve. It has always been about the change circumstance petition. It has always been about the nuclear survivors. What can we do for them? It's not necessarily about the Marshall Islands leading the discussion on nuclear disarmament for Reach Me. No, it's always been, what about the people, the neglected people? What about them? We talk about nuclear disarmament, but who controls that political discussion? Why isn't it the survivors? Where are they? Where are they in these discussions? What do they get out of nuclear disarmament? Does that mean we just forget about the changed circumstance petition that was presented to U.S. Congress asking them for money to give them the relief that they deserve after suffering for so long? So that's where we come in for Reach Me. It's always been about drawing attention and putting a human face on the issue of nuclear disarmament by redirecting the conversation and making it about these people. And that's the passion that drives me to do the things that I do. It's always been about that angle, making it about the nuclear survivors and their quest for justice. And what Reach Me's goal is, is to create a general awareness of what that justice entails, which is for us, it's always been fair reparations to them. It is to get their sense of equal dignity back. Because if you think about it, If you compare the level of compensation of American downwinders as compared to Marshallese nuclear victims, the discrepancy is evident. Not to say that downwinders aren't equally deserving of reparations, but the fact that Marshallese nuclear survivors who suffered immensely and were subjected to to bombs that were higher in yield and higher in radiation, it just shows you that these people have not been equally dignified in terms of fair reparations. It's not just compared to downwinders, but it is also compared to the Japanese victims that were also affected in Bravo, who got more, about 2 million for 20,000. And then when the people of Rongolab try to get about the same amount of money so that to be in the name of equality and equal dignity, they haven't. And as we go on to the present context, the change circumstance petition that is supposed to give them that sense of equal dignity by giving fair reparations in terms of the latest human standards that is acceptable, it's still not been done. You have been at the United Nations to bring Uh attention to this issue. What has been the nature of your direct involvement in the process of coming up with this nuclear weapons ban treaty? My involvement, it's mostly on the Marshallese government. One of our members, Deborah barker Manafe, is doing that right now. And it is a complex topic. Basically, I give her advice on how her speeches should perfectly reflect a more accurate form of history, like what really happened, what the people want. So that's my part. My part has always been like telling and reminding 
some of our Marshallese negotiators that it has to be always about the survivors. Like, the survivors are the point. Otherwise, why are we doing this? We don't want fame. I don't want fame. I really want justice for these people. Like, it is their story, essentially. That's why I joined this cause. Even these nuclear-free talks that have been going on for so long, the reason why I wanted to be a part of it is I just wanted to remind people not to forget about the survivors because it is actually the people that are always the story. We can talk about nuclear weapons and nuclear treaties all we want, but what really gives it force is the survivors because they really are the point of these discussions. It is their story, essentially. The human consequences of nuclear weapons is why I am here. What do you think the impact of this agreement will be once it is finally worded? And what do you hope the impact will be? The reason why I prefer the non-government position, because I'm part of Rishmi, is I believe it'll put it in the forefront of our thinking, putting a ban on nuclear weapons these talks, and basically it'll also make the discussions on the Marshallese nuclear history still relevant in people's minds. It'll keep it relevant to the point where people are still talking about it, and it'll create a curiosity frenzy where people want to know, why is it that the Marshall Islands are so active? Oh, we didn't know that 67 nuclear bombs were detonated there. What happened there? It's these kind of discussions that will come from these nuclear talks, but as far as will there be substantial impacts, I believe it'll draw attention to the issue on the nuclear history because most Americans are entirely ignorant of that part of history. They know what bikini is, but they know it as a swimsuit. They don't know that it's actually an indigenous asshole from the Marshall Islands. Bikini swimsuit was named after. These things from these talks, I believe sometimes it is necessary to draw attention on the real issue the real impact that I see as really coming out of these discussions and these treaties. And it will kind of put more diplomatic pressure on these nuclear powers to recheck themselves before they wreck themselves, basically. But the impact that I really, really want out of these discussions is to for these big countries to actually see where it is that they're at and then make amends to what it is that they actually did in the Marshall Islands, especially USA. They are our most favorite nation, and I don't believe that they won't keep their promise. I mean, they did promise that they were going to fix it. I might be naive, but I still hold that promise that they will keep their word. A few moments ago, you mentioned reparations. What Mm -hmm. further reparations or remediation, as much as is possible, would you want to see for your people, the Marshallese, Well, all they're asking for is what was promised. And what was promised? What was promised was that a nuclear claims tribunal would be created to address future claims that might arise. And if you look at the congressional record, it is pretty clear that the intent of it was to create an avenue for future reparations should they arise, should new facts come to light, which they have after declassified documents reveal further damage that weren't foreseen by Marshallese people and new science on nuclear testings have also surfaced and new standards, new health standards. These reparations through the Nuclear Claims Tribunal, which was agreed by the U.S. government, and they've actually went by the proper procedures, doing stuff from peer-reviewed journals, 
all the latest standards were applied. All the fairest standards were also added to take into consideration the latest science, the latest research, and the latest studies, and the most comprehensive studies as this nuclear claims tribunal was uniquely situated where it could observe the victims in the Marshall Islands firsthand, their testimonies, see what the living conditions are in the Marshall Islands, understanding that those living conditions and how it is that they can address it. These kinds of facts were very essential for the nuclear claims tribunal, and because they're located in the Marshall Islands and they get to see the situation firsthand, no other accurate study could be more essential to basing that claim of fair reparations. And this reparations scheme was actually created through the Compact of Free Association, which is U.S. public law. So if, as you were saying, like, what reparations am I asking about? It's that avenue that was agreed, which is a changed circumstance petition, which was submitted to U.S. Congress in 2000 and still sits with them for formal action. When can we expect to hear the final wording of the U.N. Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty? They're still going through it. I don't know whether there was a set date, but on Friday, they were going over some of the content and the wording. So it's a very, very long process because for the Marshall Islands, there are certain parts of it where it has to be more vocal in putting its footprint because of its unique circumstances. But I can't give you a definite answer. Nuclear Hot Seat has an international listenership in 122 countries. This is as of our most recent audit, which was just last month, May of 2017. What can we around the world do to help promote our countries in agreeing to this most important nuclear weapons ban treaty? I believe that people should have a more general awareness and not only say that they have a more general awareness about the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons, but they should also act it out. Not only was it agreed by formal treaties and international laws especially, that conform to human rights, I believe a greater effort to draw attention to the chain circumstance petition that sits with the U.S. Congress is very essential to the nuclear ban treaty talks because that draws attention to the humanitarian consequences because by not addressing it formally, the U.S. Congress, they're basically setting a precedent where it's okay to not give fair reparations to underprivileged group of people who are doing all they can to bring justice. This change circumstance petition is very, very essential to this nuclear ban treaty talk because it is an existing precedent of inaction towards fulfilling a promise of human rights to the people who sacrifice immensely to the Cold War for America's victory in it, especially now that it is a global superpower. And even as we today, as we speak, the Marshall Islands still hosts the Ronald Reagan test site, and it still hosts America's nuclear waste in the ruined dome in Enueta. I want my listeners to hear pressure their leaders, especially in U.S. Congress or wherever it is that they might have a little bit of pull in 
are very essential to kind of draw more attention to why the nuclear ban treaty is essential to draw light to humanitarian consequences that are still very real to a group of people that are that are very much neglected in our everyday conversations. And that's what I really want my listeners to know and do. If people wish to continue to learn more about the Marshall Islands and be in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do so? That's an easy answer. The best way is person-to-person contact. Go visit the Marshall Islands and see these people. Look at it from a human perspective in the most fashionable sense where you use all five of your senses. Go there and see them before they all pass away, especially the people that were there during Bravo. There's probably less than 20 of them that are still alive. Come there and see what it is that they actually went through, and they can tell you their memories of that incident in the most vivid details that will leave you in shock and help make you question American leadership as to where it stands then and where it stands now as it still does not address this change circumstance petition presented by these people. I want to thank you so much, Desmond Dalatron, for the work that you've been doing on behalf of your people of the Marshall Islands and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot State. You're very welcome, Libby. Desmond Dalatron of Reach Me, the Marshall Islands NGO. There are a whole string of website URLs that can provide you with more information about the Marshall Islands, the Bikini Atoll, and the work of Reach Me. These links will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 313. They will include a link to the Change Circumstance Petition, which was presented to the U.S. Congress by the Marshall Islands in 2005 and has been steadfastly ignored ever since. To learn more about the Marshall Islands and the medical experiments that resulted because of their exposure to radiation, I strongly urge you to view the film Nuclear Savage by Adam Jonas Horowitz. We have a preview clip from the movie up on the website under this episode. And if you're interested in a well-reasoned perspective on what is being attempted at the UN and some thoughts on what else is needed to curb nuclear's stranglehold on the world, Dennis Riches in Japan has written a thought-provoking blog post, a new treaty banning nuclear weapons? Would that it were so simple. We'll have a link up to that on the website as well. This episode, 313. Heidi Hutner is an associate professor of sustainability at Stony Brook University in New York, and she has written an amazing op-ed piece for Newsday. It's entitled, A Threat to New York's environmental legacy. And in it, she takes on Governor Andrew Cuomo and the fact that, as she puts it, Cuomo is on the verge of destroying the legacy he has built rather than maintaining an environmental record that will serve as the model for other states. He risks being defined as the politician who bailed out three aging, unprofitable nuclear power plants with the largest tax increase in New York's history. The op-ed is compact, logical, powerful, and elegant. Not unlike Professor Hutner herself. And congratulations to David Kraft, Director of Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, which is headquartered in Chicago. 
He received a national award from the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability and Beyond Nuclear for nearly four decades of diligent dedication in the belly of the beast and his good-humored visionary work for a nuclear-free world, demonstrating tireless determination despite daunting odds. He was given the Judith Johnsrud Unsung Hero Award, but now we are singing Dave Kraft! I've interviewed Dave a couple of times for this show, and he is one of our powerful leaders. So again, Dave, it's been a long time coming. Mazel tov. Here's today's final thought. Fighting nuclear is exhausting. In confronting this information regularly, information that is powered by millions of dollars a year and PR experts who concentrate on duping the public into believing that nuclear is clean, green, and sustainable, it's easy to get exhausted. One triggers the adrenal fight-flight-freeze response all the time. Now, this is the physical, biochemical response to the ongoing stress of bad nuclear news. It impacts the heart rate, blood pressure, ability to process nutrients, every bodily system. It's tough. Believe me, I know. It is tough to look at nuclear's awful footprint on this planet, know it as absolutely true, and then see how the world does not recognize its dangers. It's like watching a child play with matches or lemmings on full gallop towards the edge of the cliff. Sometimes it feels like no matter how hard we scream our warnings, the majority of people just don't want to listen. Oh, not you. You listen. If you didn't, you wouldn't be listening at this point in the program. That's why I'm speaking to you, to all of us. We all need to take care of our health as we engage in this battle. Without going into any details, I recently got a huge health wake-up call. While my MDs were busy debating the cause and putting me through more medical tests than I've experienced in the rest of my adult life put together, my acupuncturist, accurately I believe, diagnosed what happened as a panic attack created by overload on my internal alarm system. She specifically cited my never-ending exposure to nuclear information as the cause and advised that I take steps to turn down the intensity of its impact on me. She'd never tell me to give up nuclear entirely because she knows me too well. So instead of adding to the fight-flight-freeze triggers with concerns over my health, I've instituted some self-care steps that you might want to consider as well. The first is meditation. I'm not going to be a yogini, but it's okay to sit in one place for five minutes and just pay attention to my breath. I'm getting more exercise, though of a gentle, not a competitive kind. I'm taking supplements to support heart health, brain functioning, and de-stressing. I have bid a fond farewell to sugar, for as long as it lasts, and my goal is to lose 20 pounds in the next two years, a very manageable goal that doesn't scare me and that I've already been able to make progress towards. It's crucial to my healing that I take time in nature every day. When I can't get to Sequoia, I access the Sequoia within, or a reasonable facsimile in my neighborhood. And laughter. 
I've started attending laughter yoga classes, which are a great de-stressor. I strongly urge for any upcoming intense nuclear conference that we add at least a few laughter yoga breaks, because if we don't get rid of the energy through laughing, we'll probably break down crying or getting sick, and we don't want either of those to happen. As you can tell from activists who have been doing this work for decades, each of us is in this for the long run. So as I take care of myself, you take care of yourselves too. Take regular breaks. Do silly and wonderful things that have nothing to do with the failings of the world. I personally enjoyed Wonder Woman in 3D. Keep yourself centered. If you find yourself out of balance, take time to bring yourself back. De-stress. Detoxify. Stay in community with others who share your beliefs and ideas. And keep yourself healthy for the long run. We need each of you, every one of you, every step of the way. Be well, stay safe, and let's go out there and take nuclear down. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June twentieth, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from Newsday.com, Reuters.com, CounterCurrentNews.com, Bob Alvarez, MetroEastSun.com, FilmInt.nu, Washington Post, PublicIntegrity.org, TheChiefLeader.com, PRI.org, WashingtonExaminer.com, EcoWatch.com, CapeCodTimes.com, and the fabulous reporting of Christine Legere. Mainichi.jp, LeSesShows.fr, pardon the French, TheGuardian.com, OttawaCitizen.com, LitByImagination.blogspot.com, and Dennis Riches, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray of the Virginia Sierra Club, and a big shout-out and acknowledgement to you, the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, and all of those who support this work with suggestions, with links, and with kind, supportive words. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. That's my name, the show's name, and a link to the website. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor and compassion as possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we just found out as of May 2017, Nuclear Hot Seat is downloaded in 122 countries. Yes, indeed, when it comes to nuclear, the whole world is watching. So they and you have all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all truly in the Nuclear Hot Seat. New.
nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.